I was reminded of this as we're looking at the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. I'm grateful for the men and women that God has given us on our praise team because they don't do this for their notoriety. They don't do this to be seen. They do this to exalt Jesus as Lord. And I'm grateful for that. Because what we're going to see this morning is that if you and I, as a church, as individuals, as a family, if we make our life about us and our pride and our doing what we want to do or being noticed or having notoriety by others, then we will see this morning that God deals very strongly with that. In fact, as you're opening your Bibles, I'd encourage you to go ahead and open to the end of Acts chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 36. We're going to read down through chapter 5, verse 11, and this is an incredibly odd story. This is uh, something that, that seems more in line with what you see in the Old Testament than you do in the New. And some people have this idea that there's a different God that you're looking at in the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament was cranky and probably needed a Snickers, you know, he must have been hangry or something, you know, and the God of the New Testament is loving and kind and gracious, where the God of the Old Testament was just wrath and vengeful and all this kind of stuff, and that's just not true. God is the same as he always has been, and as we're looking at the story this morning, we're firmly in the New Testament, but what we're going to see is that God still takes sin very seriously. And in fact, the sin that we're talking about today is, in fact, kind of the sin that undergirds all sin. It's, under, it's kind of the mother of all sin, if you will, and that is the sin of pride. Now, as we talk about pride, it's very difficult because our world thinks of pride as a good thing, right? You should take pride in your work. You should take pride in your schoolwork. You should be proud of that. And to a degree, there is such a thing as having a self, healthy self-image of understanding who God has made you to be, that God's equipped you with certain abilities, with certain talents, with certain things. And so you do those things for the glory of God, and you should do everything you do as well as you can do it. Okay, You should bring excellence to everything you do from cleaning the house to writing papers to building whatever it is that you build to whatever your job is to whatever your hobbies are. You should strive to do those things with excellence because we serve a God who has done things with excellence. That's how we reflect him in the way that we do things. Okay, However, pride is when that switches from I want to do things with excellence to I want to do things with excellence so that others will notice how excellent I am. As we think about pride here this morning, we're going to be picking up here in Acts chapter 4. And as we're looking at this this morning, as we kind of try to put an idea around the word pride and what does that actually mean, we've used this before, but I just, Jamie, go ahead and throw up the word pride there, okay? Um, Should have a slide that's just the word pride, okay? Now, this only works in English, okay? So this is not like a super spiritual thing. But what do you notice about the word pride? How many letters are in the word pride? Five, good. Okay, you guys are awake enough to count at least that far. All right, what do you notice about the letter I? It's in the middle. If you want a good way to understand what pride is, it's putting I in the middle. Now, I know that's bad grammar, me, but that's what pride is. Pride is putting I in the middle, what I want, what I think is best. And that's why I say that pride is the root of all basic sin, because all sin at some level is me saying, I know what's best, and I know better than God does. So every sin we commit comes back to this root of pride. That's what we're going to see this morning as we're looking at the story of Barnabas and then Ananias and Sapphira. Now, this is a very odd passage, 
So if you're new to Christianity, if you're new to church, this is going to sound really crazy. Hang with us while we try to explain what we're seeing here and what God did and why. And I think you might be surprised as you go back. Now, we finished up last week. We looked at that summary statement that that Luke gave, talking about the early church and how they were doing a great job of holding all things in common. They had a common purpose. But then one of the other hallmarks of the church, and by the way, Luke, as a great writer, he's kind of setting the ball on the tee for what he's getting ready to talk about. He's preparing us because one of the key things that was marking that early church was the fact that they held their possessions in common. In other words, if I was aware that there was a need in the church, I would take what I had and be willing to sell that so that somebody else's need could be met. We saw that they had that pattern that had been established. It was a voluntary pattern, as we'll see even further today. But they were doing that. So as we pick up here in verse 36 of chapter 4, we're going to have an example of somebody doing just that. Okay? So read with me chapter 4, verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now pause right there for a second. Barnabas, one of the guys that is introduced here, seems kind of weird because he's never mentioned in the rest of the passage. That's because Luke is introducing him. He was one of the several who had sold things and given it to the church. Luke's just kind of throwing his name out there so that when he comes back to Barnabas, I think in chapter 9, that you'll be familiar with this guy. You've seen him before. You've heard the name before. So he's just kind of throwing that out there. In all of the people who were selling and giving things to the church for the church to be able to minister to the needs of those around them, Barnabas was one of those guys. So he sold a piece of land that he had and he brought all of it and he laid it at the apostles' feet. By the way, I'm really glad that that's nowhere prescribed that I, you're supposed to come bring your offering to lay it at my feet. That would just be weird for me, okay? I'm really glad that we don't. We've got a box out in the foyer for you to drop your offering in as you come in if you're giving through check or cash. We also have online giving for you to be able to give that way, um, but you, you don't have to lay it at my feet, okay? I'm not an apostle. We've talked about that. As we see this, though, you've got Barnabas, Bring his gift, laying at the apostles' feet. Great. So then chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge, and that's important, and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay? So we have to kind of guess a little bit as to what's going on here, but by what we see taking place, it seems like the conversation in Ananias and Sapphira's hearts went something like this. Well, Barnabas gave, you know, he sold his land, he gave all the money, and everybody's like, oh, wow, look at Barnabas, what a great guy. He had gained some notoriety in the church because he had been so generous and people knew about it. It was a more public offering because he was laying at the apostles' feet. So it seems like Ananias and Sapphira wanted in on that action. They wanted a little piece of that notoriety. They wanted to be well-known like everybody else. But let's be honest, land's expensive. So what we're going to do is we're going to sell our land and we're going to give maybe most of it. We're going to hold part of it back. Now, by the way, that wasn't wrong. The problem was when they gave it, they pretended like they had given all of the money for the sale. So what's that? It's a lie, right? See, their pride led them to lie. And here's how God responded. Verse 3, Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You've not lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. 
The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, this is before cell phones, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door. They'll carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young man came in and found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. Whoa. That got heavy in a hurry, didn't it? It was just a little lie, right? I mean, they just... See, here's the thing. Undergirding that lie was that pride, that desire for recognition, that desire to be known. And what we're going to see this morning is that that pride absolutely destroys individuals and, if unchecked, will destroy a church. See, we're now five chapters into the book of Acts. And as we've been going through the book of Acts, so far, everything's been good. The church has been doing a great job. They've been seeing God blessed. They've been seeing God save people. They've been having favor, and they've been able to, to defend themselves in front of the Sanhedrin and the courts and things like that. And, and as all this has been going on, it's been really good news. This is the first public sin that we know of in the history of the church. And so because of it, God deals with it very strongly. If you catch nothing else out of this message this morning, I want you to understand that although God may not strike you dead right here on a Sunday morning, nothing will destroy the work of God in a church faster than unchecked pride. Okay? So let's try to make sense of what we're seeing here. As we've gone through all this, like I said, we put pride in the middle. Here's what the Bible says about pride. James chapter 4, verse 6, God gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Some of you may have seen a translation that says God stiff arms the proud. It actually is the idea of God lining up in battle array against the proud, okay? So think about coming to the field of battle because you're proud, you're confident in who you are, you're taking the credit, you're taking the glory, and God lines up in battle array against you. But he gives grace grace to the humble. Now, as we go through this stern level of warning, I want you guys to understand, yes, God gives grace. So my challenge to you, my, my prayer for you is that God would root out any pride that's in my heart, that's in your heart, that would destroy us and keep him from working as he should. Now, for us to understand that, we're going to see three different truths about what pride does. The first truth that we see here is that pride desires. Pride desires. As the story begins, you see that righteous example of Barnabas who was giving a sincere gift in the sight of the Lord. He knew that God had loved him so much that Jesus would die in his place and be raised from the dead. And so he gave out of the overflow of that. If God's been generous to us, then he wanted to give this land so that needs could be met. Like we said last week, he gave out of his abundance or his supply, knowing that if he had a need, God would use somebody else's supply to meet his need. Okay, so as he's giving generously, like I said, Ananias and Sapphira seem to desire a piece of that action, right? They want to get in on this. That instead of seeking the Lord and asking him to grow them, Ananias decides to take a shortcut. As you can tell from the way that they gave this, their motivation was not to help the poor. It wasn't to give extravagantly to the God who'd given them new life. Their motivation seems to have been that they would be seen by other people. 
They wanted the applause of others. They wanted to look good. They wanted to be looked at the way the same people looked at Barnabas. They wanted people to say those good things. But you know what they forgot in all of this? They forgot what God would say about it. In being so concerned about how others looked at them, they forgot what God cared about and what was important to him. In desiring for everybody else to notice them, Ananias and Sapphira forgot that there's a God who sees our heart and is not impressed by our hypocrisy. In fact, John MacArthur said it this way, none are so ugly in God's sight as those who flaunt a spiritual beauty they do not possess. Ananias and Sapphira were nothing more than sinning saints feigning spirituality. None are so ugly in God's sight as those who flaunt a spiritual beauty that they don't possess. Now, guys, when I look around, y'all look pretty good today. We have done a great job, especially in the southern U.S., of knowing how we're supposed to be when we come to church, right? We're supposed to be put together. We're supposed to be, you know, act a certain way. Yes, you know, but brother, I'm blessed, better than I deserve, you know, and things like that. Those those statements that may be true, but sometimes they become cliches that we use as veneers to cover the fact that actually our whole life is falling apart. You guys remember that old commercial? I think it was for LendingTree.com where the guy's got the big house and he's riding around on his lawnmower and uh, he said, people ask me, how do I do it? I'm in debt up to my eyeballs, you know? Some of us, I think we do that on Sunday mornings. Oh, I'm blessed, brother, how about you? When really, in reality, your life's falling apart. Now, I'm not saying that you need to come into church and you need to be like, Oh, guess what, guys? I had a terrible week. I totally dropped the ball, and, and my boss almost fired me. My dog got run over by a car, and my wife left me. Praise the Lord. You know, like it, it, I'm not saying you want to be a country music song when you come in. Um, but at the same time, we've got to check ourselves and make sure that when we come in, we're not going after that same notoriety. Why do we do what we do? Is it so others will see? Ananias and Sapphira's ugly hearts were completely clear to the God who created them. See, pride, like any other sin, starts as a heart attitude. Before it's ever an action, pride starts as that heart attitude. Before they ever uttered a lie or held back any of the money, Ananias and Sapphira's hearts were proud. That started as a desire in their hearts that led to sinful actions. James says that's how all sin works. James chapter 1, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. And that's literally what we see happen in this passage. At some level, there was a desire in them to take the credit away from what God was doing in the church and put it on themselves. And when that happened, God did not tolerate it. And it resulted in their immediate physical death. So here's a question for you this morning as you're thinking about that. And I want you to be slow to answer this question. What does your heart want more than anything else? Okay? What does your heart want more than anything else? When you saw that the stimulus check was coming out, what was the first thing you thought about wanting to do with that money? See, that's a good indication of where your heart may be. As you think through this, is it that you want notoriety like Ananias and Sapphira wanted? You want people to know how good you are? You want people to know how special you are? Is it that you want somebody to like you or respect you? 
Is it an excessive desire for stuff or for comfort or for status? What is it for you that you say, man, this really, if I were honest, this drives everything I do. And you're not being honest with me. This is between you and God. See, if it's anything that that goes contrary to what God's word or is more than what God says in his word. Like for instance, parents, you ought to care about your kids, right? You ought to strive to make sure that your kids, as best you can, that you're guiding and shaping them and training them up and raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, right? That's one of our things that we're supposed to be doing as parents. If, however, though, you start tying your identity to how your kids do in school or how your kids do in life, it's become pride because it's no longer about making sure that your kids grow up to honor Jesus. It's making sure that your kids grow up to be respectable enough for you to not be embarrassed. That's pride. You see, that's a a good thing, that desire to to make sure our kids turn out well becomes a God thing, which makes it a bad thing. We put it it in a place that it doesn't deserve to be and it can't hold. Is your heart desiring something that that doesn't line up with what God says in his word? Is is your heart's desire contrary to what God has said? His heart's desire is for you. By the way, you know what God's desire is for you? For you to be transformed into the image of Jesus, okay? That's one of the things that the Bible teaches us in Romans chapter eight, that God's ultimate desire for you is that you look like, act like, talk like, think like Jesus. So is the thing that your heart wants most of all, is that moving towards that goal? If not, then you're saying you know better what your life should be than what God does, and that's pride. So what is the pride in your heart desiring? Before you answer that, you may need to realize the second truth about pride that we see in this story, and that is that, number two, pride by its very nature deceives. Pride by its very nature deceives. Because they wanted that notoriety so badly, they were willingly to blatantly lie to others. Now, why is lying wrong? It's lying is wrong because it is a direct offense to the character of God. We gotta understand, when we talk about sin, what's right and what's wrong, God didn't just sit down one day before he created and say, you know what, let's see, I'm getting ready to make people and I know certain things that they do are gonna be fun and enjoyable, so I'm gonna make all of those things illegal, okay? That's not how God decided what's right and what's wrong. It's not some arbitrary list. Instead, you have verses like John chapter 14, verse six, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus, as he self-identifies, he's saying, I am the truth, okay? His character, his nature is truth. So if I'm supposed to be conformed in the image of God, then when I lie, I'm going against the truth, which is going against the very character and nature of God. This is why lying's a big deal. So as we look at that, if he is by very nature truth, then the desire of Ananias and Sapphira's heart is contrary to the nature of God because they're taking part in a bold-faced lie. Now, here's what's interesting. The Bible doesn't actually record Ananias ever speaking. Did you notice that? Look back with me. Verse two, he kept back a part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Verse three, Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Now, Ananias may have said something. We don't know. We have to be careful when we make an argument from silence. But at the same time, he may have just said, hey guys, we sold the property and here's money and never actually said, 
This is all of it. But God, through his Holy Spirit, helped Peter to see something was wrong here, that there was deception. Here's the thing about pride. Not only does it lead us to try to deceive others like it did Ananias and Sapphira, it also leads us to deceive ourselves. I've used the example fairly recently about when you're sitting at a stoplight and the person in front of you doesn't go when the light changes, right? If you're over the age of probably 45, your immediate thought is, ah, get yourself off your phone, stop texting and driving, you know? If you would just get your head up, you'd see what the light would change. Now, but again, if you are sitting at a stoplight and you're not on your phone because we don't do that because it's illegal, right? And unsafe and unwise. <clears throat> but if you're sitting at the stoplight and you're just kind of zoned out because it's been a long day at work and you're tired and you're on your way home and you just kind of, you just zoned out for a second and all of a sudden you look up and you go, oh, light's green. Well, of course, I, it's just, I've had such a long day. If, if it was the other way around, it's the idiot still on his phone. If it's you, it's just, I just had a long day. You know what that is? It's pride. That's pride that says my sin's not a big deal. It's that pride that deceives to say, you know what? Uh, yeah, I, I may struggle with this, but... See, I can imagine Ananias and Sapphira sitting down saying, I mean, really, the church ought to be grateful. I mean, we didn't have to sell this. Like, like you said, he says there in verse four, wasn't it yours while you possessed it? After it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it you playing this thing in your heart? See, he, he said, this was your property. You didn't have to sell it. And after you sold it, you didn't have to bring in the gift. So at all points, they had control over this. So he could have come in and said, guys, we sold the property and, and here's half of what we sold it for. Oh, well, yeah, well, Barnabas sold all of it. I can't, we can't let Barnabas show us up like that. So instead, they lie. But it's not that, I mean, it's not that, it's most of what we sold for. I mean, they ought, they ought to be grateful for that, right? I mean, you know, it, it's, it's enough. It's, it's a good gift. See, that deception runs into our hearts so that we miss it. I'm going to jump a couple of verses, by the way, so Brody, uh, good luck. Um, jumping down to verse, uh, see, as we're talking about this, remember that God cares more about the heart than he cares about the gift, okay? God cares far more about the heart than he cares about the gift. And that's why you've got a story in the Old Testament where Saul, the king, was supposed to go and wipe out all of these people and destroy everything that they had, and instead he decided that he was going to keep back the best of the spoils for himself. So the prophet Samuel shows up and says, hey, why am I still hearing sheep if you were supposed to kill them all? And Saul's quick on his feet. So he says, oh, because I, I was, uh, it was an offering for the Lord. That's because I, I was going to give an offering to the Lord. Well, that's not what God said. God said, obey me by destroying all of it. And Saul decided he wanted to do what he wanted to do. So in his pride, he tried to deceive. And that's when 1 Samuel 15 says, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. If Ananias and Sapphira had said, man, our heart's just not in a place to be able to give right now. That would have been more pleasing to God than giving an offering so that they'd get a pat on the back. For them to come to God for grace and say, God, 
when I got ready to think about giving, I, I couldn't help but feel that, that tinge in my heart that says that I, I still am too attached to this. God, would you, would you remove that and make it where I could give freely and hold off for a little bit until you worked through the sin there? That would have been much more God-honoring than even giving half of it and lying about it because the pride deceived them into thinking it was okay. Contrary to what Walt Disney would tell you, you should never follow your heart, okay? This is terrible advice that my generation and down has bought into wholesale, okay? Following your heart is a terrible idea. Why? Jeremiah chapter 17 says this, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable, okay? Following your heart, well, your heart is more deceitful and lies worse than anything, and it's incurable, who can understand it? Then he goes on to say, I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give to each according to his ways, according to what his actions deserve. God is the one who knows your heart. You don't even understand it. Well, I, I'm, I'm very self-aware. Okay, have you ever had a day where you got upset about something and you have no, re, no idea why? Then you don't understand your heart. Have you ever talked yourself into something that you knew was a bad idea, but you talked yourself into it anyway? Because your heart deceives. So instead, you need to surrender to Christ to acknowledge him and stop trying to live in pride and stop trying to do this on your own, but say, God, I need you to, to work. When's the last time you prayed something like David prays in Psalm chapter 139 where he says, search me, God, know my heart, test me and know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So let's circle back to the question we asked a few minutes ago. What does your heart want most of all? Maybe what you need to do this afternoon is sit down with God and, and spend some time you know, out sitting on the back porch saying, God, I, I feel like I'm doing okay here, but I need you to search my heart. Where have I let my pride trip me up? Where am I living my life my way and not your way? Where am I deceiving myself and possibly even deceiving others? And get that right with him. Ask God for grace. Maybe you need to stop and rethink your answer from earlier. Now, the reason we answer that question is incredibly important because as you see with Ananias and Sapphira, the third thing is pride destroys. Pride destroys. Now, I was joking with the worship team. Can you imagine if God still worked this way today? <laughs> I don't know that you'd have a pastor right now because I dare say there's been Sundays when I've gotten up and I've been doing this because I think I've got a good message for you. I don't know that you would have a worship team because as awesome as they are, there's probably been Sundays where they've stood up and sang or played because they've got this one in the bag. See, when Ananias and Sapphira came with that pride and they deceived and they lied, verse five, when he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped up his body, carried him out, buried him. Done. Jump down to verse 10. Instantly, Sapphira dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband. 
whoa. God struck them dead for their pride. My quiet times recently have had me in the book of Numbers. Numbers is a hard book to read because there's a lot of numbers in it. <laughs> it gets its name honestly. But in the midst of all the censuses, you see times when God's people acted in pride and God responds by killing thousands of them. By the time the book is over, over two million people have died because of our pride. Well, that makes God some kind of monster. Actually, not at all. God's word is very clear. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Again, for some, this sounds very Old Testament-y, right? Some of us want to try to divorce and say, well, God's not that same God anymore. That's just not the truth. God's standard of holiness has not changed. Now, the reason he dealt with this as immediately and severely, for one, that's up to him. But what we can draw by conjecture is this was such a damaging sin that God stopped it at its tracks. Why? Because the church is in its infancy. The church is really young, just getting started, and God wants to make it very clear that pride will destroy the work of God in a church. Okay? If you've been in church for any length of time, you've seen it before. Now, for us to kind of understand what's going on here, when, when I say that God is not some monster who just likes to zap people, I mean, I remember there was an old flash game called Smite Thee where you were Zeus sitting in a cloud and these little guys would run out and you would throw a lightning bolt down at them to try to zap them before they made it off the side of the screen, okay? That's, that's not who God is. Some of you, that's your picture of him and this just confirms it, right? I mean, here's two people in church, they're bringing at least something and God smites them dead. Well, what is God doing? Now, for us to understand this, I, I want you to, to go with me because we need to make a, a case here that I think is biblically solid and that is, I believe that Ananias and Sapphira were believers, okay? I believe that they were Christians. Now, some scholars will debate that and say that they probably were unsaved because they were lying against the Holy Spirit. But what I see here to me indicates that they were believers. And that's really important as we see why God did what he did, okay? Here's some reasons, by the way, why why, uh, John MacArthur points out that they were likely believers, and I agree with him. Um, They were included in the congregation of those who believed, it talks about. They were involved with the Holy Spirit. This was a lesson for the church, and if they were unbelievers, it doesn't really teach the church a lesson. It was something for them to learn. And we also know from other passages of Scripture that Satan can be personally involved with believers. So I think there's a good case to be made that Ananias and Sapphira had surrendered to Christ and were following him as Lord, and they gave in to pride and got off track. Okay, so what on earth was God doing? Well, first off, it was a lesson for the church. It was to warn the congregation and to show them that God still deals seriously with sin. As we've mentioned, this is that first internal attack. Perhaps God knew that the selfishness, the deception, the arrogance that came through pride would destroy the church if it was left unchecked. So he dealt with it quickly, severely, and publicly. And if you notice, the church got the hint. Check out verse 11 again. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. I dare say so. I mean, that's an appropriate response. If you see somebody get out of line and the next moment they drop dead, fear is an an appropriate response to that. So this was a corrective to the church as a whole. 
that this was to help them to see this is not okay. This will destroy the work of God in the world if you let this go unchecked. So God dealt with it strongly and severely. But now here comes the next question. I think there's more than this. What about Ananias and Sapphira? Here's where I'm gonna make a case that, that may be a little unusual. God did this to protect Ananias and Sapphira. Now that sounds weird, doesn't it? God killed someone to protect them. Here's where I get that. Some of you guys know, all right, what happens to Christians after they die? Go to heaven. When they go to heaven, 1 Corinthians 3 talks about there will be a judgment of our works. Now, there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. We are saved. We are fully justified. We are right before God. However, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3 that there will be a time when our works will be tried by fire and that those things that we've done for Christ and remain will receive back as a reward while everything else will be burned up and destroyed. In fact, 1 Corinthians 3.15, he says this, if anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Okay? Now track with me here. That's what was waiting for Ananias and Sapphira after their death, and it's waiting for all of us as believers. By the way, if you're not a follower of Christ, you're going through a different judgment where you'll be accountable for all of your sins unless you receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord. This is not a judgment of us as far as condemnation. This is a judgment of our works, and it's a judgment of reward, okay? But in that moment, the things that we have done for Christ will receive back as a reward, and everything else will be burned up, okay? Now, I know some of you are looking at me a little quizzically, so do I need to back up for a second? All right, there's two basic judgments that you're gonna go through. The first, the biggest one, if you will, is on whether or not your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, whether or not you've ever been drawn into a relationship with Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. Those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life will spend eternity separated from God. So those who have not surrendered to Christ, those are condemned in their sin. Okay? We clear on that part so far? Seriously, make the nodding sound. It's okay. All right. However, for those of us who are believers... Our sins have been covered and atoned for by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. So there is therefore, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That judgment is taken care of. So if you had a book of all the things that I've ever had written or that I've ever done sitting there next to it, what's in those books don't matter because my name is written in, in this instance. Do not matter because what's written in that book, my name is written in the name, Lamb's book of life, not because of what I have done, but because of what Jesus has done on my behalf. Okay, we still clear on that. So because that's now taken care of, there will be a time when we as believers, in a way that we don't fully understand, will stand before God and all of our works are gonna be laid out. Those works that we've built with gold, silver, and precious stones, in other words, things we've done for Christ and for his glory and for his name, and then other things there will be built with wood, hay, and stubble. What that means, that stuff where we did it for our pride, for our selfishness, even after following Christ, Okay? Those days when I preach a message because I think I've got something awesome for you, that's wood, hay, and stubble. The days where I stand up and know that I have nothing good in my own to speak and I do this for the glory of God and him alone, that's the gold, silver, and precious stones. Okay, you see the difference? God's gonna put a match to the whole thing. 
those wood, hay, and stubble works are going to be consumed. But 1 Corinthians 3, and if you've got questions about this, look at this passage this afternoon. 1 Corinthians 3 says that those things that would remain, we will receive back as a reward. Okay? Again, we're saved, period, end, not by our works. However, there will be a time when our works are tried by fire. Okay? Are we more clear on that? If you have questions, you guys know how to get in touch with me, okay? I'd love to talk with you about this. So here, if that's true, here's why this was an act of protection on God's part. Maybe it's better to put it in in terms of of a story. Imagine a rebellious teenager. He's 17 years old, and he's sneaking out to go off to parties. At the parties, he's drinking. He's doing all the things that you shouldn't be doing at a party, right? It's breaking his mom's heart, breaking his dad's heart, and yet he keeps doing it over and over and over again. Let's say one night, dad finds out about it. He finds out where the party is, and he's had enough. So dad gets in the truck. He drives over there, busts the thing up. The kid's mad as a hornet. But that dad, because he loves him, says, son, I'm not going to let you keep doing this to yourself. I'm not going to let you keep doing this to the family. Get in the truck. We're going home. That's what a loving father would do, right? You're hurting yourself. You're hurting our family. Get in the truck. We're going home. I believe that's what we see God doing here. Ananias and Sapphira, you're hurting our family. You're hurting the church because you're letting, you're stealing the glory for yourself. You're trying to make yourself special instead of making Jesus special. You're hurting the church and you're hurting yourself. Because see, if God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, if they continue on in this pride, they're gonna keep building up wood, hay, and stubble with everything that they're doing. They're gonna keep building wood, hay, and stubble, wood, hay, and stubble, wood, hay, and stubble. And all that's gonna happen at the end of their life when they stand before God, all of that's gonna be consumed. So God in his grace and in his mercy and in his love shows up at the party and says, get in the truck, we're going home. In case you need other perspectives on this, by the way, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it talks about the fact that, uh, that or, excuse me, uh, yeah, sorry, I've lost it now, hold on. Uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, people had died because their motives were wrong in taking the Lord's Supper. So we know God had taken people out because of the damage they were doing to the, the church. Not only that, we see in uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, we read about believers being able to commit a sin that leads to death. Now, that's an ambiguous phrase, but when I put together Ananias and Sapphira, 1 Corinthians 11, and what I see in that passage, it tells me that there is a time where God, in his grace and in his mercy, says, get in the truck, we're going home. Now, again, we don't have a framework for this, right? Because for us, Killing somebody is a terrible thing, right? You don't get to decide this. You don't get to make this call. And I don't know why God allows some people to continue making sinful, painful choices that disrupt and destroy. I don't know why God does that with some where he doesn't with others. But what we see here is their pride ended their life on earth. Because God in his grace and his mercy said, come home. I'm not going to let you keep doing this. By the way, maybe that's what you need to hear this morning. You've been running. You've been trying to find your own way. You've been trying to make life work on your own. 
And what you need to hear is that there's a God who loves you so much that he'd say, come on, come home. See, he loved you so much that he would come and he would die in your place to take that condemnation that you deserve. He would come in spite of your pride, in light of your pride, because you're a proud, arrogant, stubborn individual. You're stiff-necked, as he told the people back in the Old Testament. You, because of all of these things, he had to die to break the power of sin in your life, to break this pride. And now he's risen from the dead to offer you his life in its place. So if you're here today and you've been trying to live life on your own, you need to come home. God's a better dad than any of us. And I don't know about you, I I don't ever want to get to the point where God has to kill me to keep me from hurting myself and others. I knew a, a seminary professor of mine who had seen so many men fall to immorality in ministry that he would genuinely pray, God, if I ever start going that way, make me drop dead of a heart attack right there because I don't want to dishonor your name if I'm here. I pray that God would break our hearts before we ever get to that point. And God may let you get away with it for some time. But guys, pride destroys. It will always destroy a person. It may not be as quick or as public as it would with Ananias and Sapphira, but God does not tolerate pride in his people. It will always destroy a person, and it can easily destroy a church. We've been seeing God do unbelievable things. I am so grateful for the freedom that we have in worship as a church family the way that the church is loving on each other and caring for each other and being able to talk to others about Jesus. I love what we're seeing God do. And God forbid that we would be the stopping point for that. That I, as the pastor, or you as a Sunday school teacher, or as a deacon, or as a worship team member, or as a greeter, or as whatever it is that you do, would allow your pride to stop what God desires to do. So what's the antidote for this? 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Don't grab for what other have. Instead, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. God, I need you. I can't do this on my own. God, I... I don't want anybody to ever remember my name. You know, I think when we get to heaven and we look around and see those that that have leadership positions in heaven, I think our universal reaction is gonna be, who's that? Why? Because the ones who did it in obscurity, who were faithful to God and no one ever knew their name, he said that the greatest will be least, least will be greatest. So I think we're all gonna look around in heaven and say, who's that guy? And find out that he was some pastor of some church in the backwoods of New Guinea witnessing and sharing the gospel with three people who came to Christ. And yet he was faithful every day. So God used him. He humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. So my question is, this afternoon, as you go through and ask God to search your heart and ask God to show you what your heart desires more than anything else, when you start to feel the pride coming up in that, 
when you start trying to justify it and say, well, yeah, but I mean, that's not that bad. It's not as bad as that instead you would agree with God. And you'd say, God, you're right. I need you to take over this area. I need to surrender to you. I want to encourage you, go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to give you just a moment there where you are to start that process. Maybe God's already started it as we've been talking. He's already put that, it's kind of his finger on an area in your life where you know you're not walking in obedience, where you know that that pride is welling up. Would you even now begin asking God to forgive you and root out every trace of that in you so that you can stay a clean, pure, holy, empty vessel? Would you ask God to help us as a church not to tolerate pride, but instead to confront it for God's glory and God's grace and God's goodness to continue to work through this church family? Would you ask God to show you where you're believing lies, things that your own heart has convinced you are true that just aren't? Ask him to give you grace as you humble yourself. Continue there with your head bowed and your eyes closed for just a minute. I'm gonna be standing here down front if you wanna talk to me or pray with me or whatever. If you need to follow Jesus, this would be a great time to make that commitment. If not, just do business with God where you are and then I'll close this in prayer in a minute.